Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. It has been an eventful past week and one of the uh, bits of news that has come out uh, in recent days is that President Trump elevated his chief strategist, Steve Bannon, to the National Security Council and demoted the director of national intelligence uh, off of that committee. I want to bring in Ambassador Lincoln Bloomfield. He is the chairman of the Stimson Center, and he was Assistant Secretary of State from 2001 to 2005 under George W. Bush, President uh, of the United States at the time. Uh, Ambassador Bloomfield, thank you so much for joining us. First, I just want to get a sense, before we even start to talk about the implications, what does the National Security Council really do? Well, that does vary from president to president, but it was set up under a law in 1947 in order to coordinate military and non-military activities better. And so its function traditionally has been a place where each of the cabinet departments in the national security community comes together, uh, gives their recommendations, and usually the national security advisor is, is the one uh, at the heading the, the meetings, unless the president does it himself in, in major cases of emergencies, um, and, and to, to hear their views, including their different views, see if they can resolve them, and if they can't, then they take it to the president for decision. Can you recall specific meetings which you attended in which you learned something about the operational maybe backstory of of the uh, of the you know small circle of people who are included in these meetings? Well, I was on the vice president's staff for one year under Dan Quayle, and I would I would go to those meetings and sit against the wall. So there are people who can come in the room and, and watch the meetings uh, if they're White House staff. The question is, who has a formal seat at the table? And that's that's what this is about. So President George W. Bush, for example, did not allow his political counselor, Karl Rove, to go to NSC meetings because he didn't want, didn't want to send a signal that there was any politics involved. So, Ambassador Bloomfield, what's your impression from uh, Steve Bannon being named to this? Well, you know, I, I testified last fall uh, at a hearing that the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee held about the issue of the National Security Council and the size and the role. And frankly, the bottom line is that presidents get to decide who their advisors are. This is the White House staff. So if, if President Trump wants Steve Bannon to be at the table uh, deliberating with the, the senior national security uh, agency heads, that is his call. He can, I mean, I think you sort of defer to the president. Whatever serves the president's uh, purpose to to make the best decisions. So I, he has crossed a line that was not crossed by previous presidents. President Obama had David Axelrod come to some of these meetings, but he sat out, you know, he didn't sit at the table and participate. But that's just a call that's been made. And if President Trump is relying on Steve Bannon to be uh, his advisor across the board on these issues, then, then I think that at the end of the day, people will defer to that, well, see what, how it works. But what about the, uh, on the flip side, uh, President Trump's demoting the director of national intelligence and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? 
Those, I think, are actually the more interesting discussion. I mean, obviously, people are fascinated by Mr. Bannon, whom I don't know, and he's he's a person who's getting a lot of attention. We will see how how that plays out and what he what his input is. But uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, by law, was given the principal role of uh, military advisor to the president under the Goldwater Nichols Law uh, Reform Act of 1986. And so the notion, and so what the directive said was, on those issues where they uh, have business before the committee, they can come. Otherwise, not. That I think the the impact there is whether you whether you get a really solid flow of the team around the president. And this is usually run by the National Security Advisor. So General Michael Flynn is the he- is the National Security Advisor. This is his operation. So the question is, what will be the chemistry if the people at the table keep changing? Uh, traditionally, and I'm talking about decades, uh, the first person that the National Security Advisor turns to is the intelligence person. Let's start with an intelligence update. What's the latest? What do we know? Then the Secretary of State has the sort of uh, the protocol lead. So the Secretary of State goes second or their deputies. And that's the way this has worked for decades. Uh, if key players like the military representative is not there, I think you're going to hear and already are hearing from members of Congress who say, wait a minute, um, the principal advisor of the military needs to be part of this team pretty much at all times. It is national security. And you will hear from senior military as well who feel that the voice of the professional military is essential and that whether the president agrees to it, agrees with the military advice or not, is not the point. It's whether the president is hearing that advice. And I, as for DNI, uh, Congress created the Directorate of National Intelligence after 9-11. They added a very, what turned out to be 2,000 people, a very big layer on top of right. the other agencies. And, you know, if they aren't at the table, then, uh, you know, I, I'll just give a personal view. General Flynn reads the intelligence very closely. So I don't fear that President Trump will be uninformed about intelligence. But but not having the community's voice there at the table is going to raise some questions. So how many, how much, of, so the question is how much friction do they want to cause? And, and how much... Thanks very much. Ambassador Lincoln Bloomfield, chairman of the Stimson Center, speaking about changes in the Trump administration's national security team. I want to learn more about our southern uh, border neighbor, Mexico, and uh, potential opportunities there. Uh, Gerardo Rodriguez, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at BlackRock Financial Management. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. You were quoted in an article about a week or so ago saying that you think that the Mexican peso could be one of the best bets of 2017. We've certainly had an eventful couple of days on the political front. Do you still believe that? Absolutely, Lisa, and good morning, everyone. When you think about the Mexican economy, it is an economy that uh, has been run relatively conservatively from an economic policy perspective. It is an economy that has the fiscal accounts uh, in order. Inflation has been uh, sort of coming down. There is a big shock that the Mexican economy is facing because of a change in, in policies from the U.S. administration, but so far, it is an economy that has been adjusting very well using a textbook example, tightening on the fiscal 
uh, raising interest rates on a monetary, letting the currency uh, go. And we're getting to a point in which Mexican assets actually look very, very cheap. The value that they have accumulated is quite significant, but the uncertainty surrounding the U.S.-Mexico relationship, it is something that needs to be addressed before asset prices in Mexico start to perform. But from a valuation perspective, clearly Mexican assets are one of the most attractive trade for the months uh, remaining this year. So Gerardo, uh, you served for more than a decade in the Mexican Ministry of Finance, uh, last serving as the Undersecretary of Finance and Public Credit. I imagine you've had a lot of contact with Mexican officials and probably can get a better feel for uh, just how elevated the tensions have have become. Do you have a sense of how much what we're hearing is political rhetoric uh, and sort of chest beating and, and how much we're really nearing uh, a sort of tipping point into a very bad state of affairs between Mexico and the U.S.? Well, there are um, there are two different dynamics uh, here that uh, we need to, to understand better. One is just what the U.S. wants from Mexico from a trade perspective. Mexico has been a good neighbor. It is a cooperative neighbor. It is a neighbor that tends uh, to sort of to engage and to compromise on different uh, things. It, it has been a very fruitful relationship since uh, NAFTA was signed. It was a very fruitful relationship with the Canadians and the U.S. So it would be important to understand exactly what is it that the U.S. would like if an institutional table was set up to basically modernize NAFTA. And there's a blueprint already for that, and it is basically the content in terms of the sort of rules of origin for example, that has been uh, negotiated in, in the context of TPP, intellectual uh, property, and, uh, and addressing uh, sort of disputes uh, mechanisms. Now, on the other hand, you have a, a domestic political agenda, domestic political dynamics that uh, the president of Mexico has a 12% approval rate, all-time uh, low. There's a lot of pressure, and if anything, this contentious issue against the U.S., it is something that is bringing the population together. Now, because the two uh, things are a bit uncertain, uh, you're right that we could get to different equilibriums here. I think that still the central scenario is one in which sort of reason prevails. Uh, Everyone has been uh, benefiting from NAFTA. There's potential to improve that. And then an institutional table is set up with the Canadians, the U.S. and Mexico. And that uh, brings you to a more benign outcome for asset prices in Mexico. But given what's been happening over the past few days, it is likely that we don't get there. And then uh, the tensions uh, actually uh, increase and the positions radicalize. So uh, again, it is a great value trade, but it is one that you need to be careful at this point. Uh, Mr. Rodriguez, uh, honoring the uh, theme of uh, focusing on your purchase price, of any investment. In other words, the purchase price is the most important function for some investors. Is the purchase price not only of the peso, but of certain Mexican assets at a point where you believe that long-term investors will be significantly rewarded? 
Absolutely, uh, but uh, that is assuming that the reality of a Mexican economy continues to be in line of what it has been over the past. Oh, so uh, it's, the, it's the 11th largest economy in the world. Exactly, but 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 one needs to understand that if we go the route of a say a radicalization of the positions between Mexico and the U.S., there's a lot of value that could be destroyed, and uh, actually Mexican assets could go even weaker. So again, given the central scenario in which uh, uh, countries are able to channel these uh, differences and the potential uh, to revamp NAFTA, all of that is channeled through institutional means. Absolutely. The answer to your question is that the value of Mexican assets is significantly attractive. Well, so is it just the peso that looks attractive or are there other Mexican opportunities uh, that possibly look even more so, perhaps in the corporate uh, sphere? The, the Mexican peso is certainly uh, top of mind uh, here, and I would point to Mexican interest rates. There be, there's been an increase of more than 200 basis points across the curve in uh, Mexican uh, bonds, and certainly when you 4.11 percent, 4.11 for the Mexican tenure. Yeah, and, and local currency bonds, I mean, you can get uh, bonds for 8%, uh, say, out to uh, 10, 15 years in the case of Mexico. You don't get uh, that type of yields in many places in the world, especially in economies that are run responsibly like Mexico. Is there anything that you would see to diffuse this situation rapidly, or will it have to escalate before it's diffused? Give you about 30 seconds. So uh, I, what we're looking after the signpost is uh, and has to be an announcement that the U.S., Canada, and Mexico agree on a setup or a framework to revamp NAFTA, and then you get to the technical details and uh, at that point, it stops being an element of uncertainty. Thank you very much, Gerardo Rodriguez. He is Managing Director, Portfolio Manager for the Emerging Markets Group at BlackRock Financial Management. I want to call upon uh, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Shira Oviday to tell us a little bit about the technology industry and its response to the details of the executive orders that were signed over the weekend by President Trump regarding immigration. Yeah, so obviously the some of the tech industry executives and CEOs and obviously those outside the tech industry too are responding to the calls to restrict um, immigration from some of those predominantly Muslim countries. The interesting thing to me was Sergey Brin is one of the co-founders of Google and a billionaire, one of the richest men in the world, was spotted at uh, protests at San Francisco airport over the weekend, which I don't think you would see, you know, Lloyd Blankfein or Jeff Immelt at um, immigration protests, although the, the week is young, so we'll see. <laughs> We shall see. Uh, we'll be combing the uh, JFK ranks to see whether we see Lloyd Blankfein. But in the meantime, Shira, uh, there was uh, there's an interesting uh, concern that some have that the the worst for tech companies has yet to come. That basically visa programs for foreign workers um, should be administered in a manner that protects the civil rights of American workers. This is according to a draft proposal that we may be getting from President Trump Trump imminently, uh, with the idea being that. Uh, 
some of these tech companies couldn't rely as much on some of their international recruiting programs that they have in the past. Right. So basically, there's a there's a kind of grab bag of uh, skilled worker visa programs that are employed not only by tech companies, but by many U.S. corporations. The most kind of prominent one is these H-1B visas, again, which are for skilled foreign workers in fields like engineering. And there's about 85,000 of them issued every year. Uh, there is far more demand than there is supply. And the biggest users or the biggest um, uh, companies granted those visas are outsourcing companies like Tata Consultancy and Accenture, who hire engineers that, that then work at, again, tech companies, but also big banks and retailers and other American companies. What's the advantage for the tech companies that hire internationally other than just having a bigger pool of talent? Is this a play to lower the cost uh, of, of employing people? I, I think the, the goal depends on who you ask. So these programs have been targeted before, both on the left by people like Bernie Sanders and on the right as basically a way for American companies to hire workers from abroad. They can pay less. Now, those companies who employ those, uh, those skilled worker visas say we can't find appropriate workers in the United States, that this is a global workforce, or the, the world is a global place, and we need to be able to tap into the global workforce, not just the people who live inside of the United States walls. Is there any hint that the president's administration will in some way recognize the deficit that would occur in the technology industry if it was more challenging to stay in the United States, let's say, after your term of school or study? I, I think the most honest answer is I have no idea that um, everything seems to be kind of being done by the seat of the pants, and it's a little bit hard to know what, what could, the what, possible if, effects are. If you are, are looking to make the system better uh, to address the needs of technology companies, what would be one thing that you would suggest? I think that if you ask the tech executives, they would say, we want, we want to be able to bring in more workers, and we want to be able to keep the large numbers of highly skilled, highly, highly educated um, university graduates who are graduating from Harvard and Stanford every year and are citizens of China and India and other places. Uh, I think there's a big desire to keep those people in the United States and starting companies and working for companies. So I think that's the number one fix or potential fix. With this uh, visa provision that is included in a draft uh, of an order that President Trump is expected to sign, correct? Uh, can can the president enact something like this without any congressional sign-off? I, again, the honest answer is it's not clear that obviously um, Congress has been trying to work on various um, worker visa programs for a while. And I believe there are at least one kind of piece of legislation working its way through Congress. Um, obviously, we've seen this White House already issue sweeping executive orders without uh, input from Congress or without waiting for Congress. So this may be the same, and it's unclear exactly how it would work in practice. I believe it's worth noting that this was at least described as a security measure. This is not aimed at the business community. We are looking at the potential ramifications uh, for the business community because the uh, suspension of immigration is from uh, is because they describe it as uh, countries with ties to terror, including Syria, Yemen, Sudan, Somalia, Iraq, Iran and Libya for a period of 90 days. It also calls for the complete suspension of Syrian refugees for an indefinite period. 
And I just wanted to make that clear because the issue that perhaps the technology industry or any industry is focused on now is different, but maybe uh, certainly come under the same heading, correct? Is that a Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, there's it? two issues. One, right, there's the executive order issued over the weekend affecting uh, people from those particular kind of Muslim-dominated countries and Syrian refugees. And then there's this issue of this draft order that may be coming down the pike that our colleagues wrote about affecting worker visas. And those are obviously separate issues, but both deal with immigrants to the United States. Uh, do you have a sense of which technology companies' executives are have the have the biggest voice into the White House? I don't know yet. Uh, it's been interesting to see, you know, Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple, is making the rounds in Washington in the last few days. Head of IBM. Uh, the head of IBM is also influential. The Janine CEOs, of, uh, yeah. right? The CEOs of Oracle are also very influential. Um, but it's a little bit hard to know at this point who has real influence. Because the reason why I ask is because we've heard a lot about the auto companies and the Detroit CEOs that have met uh, extensively with President Trump, and you don't hear it as much with the technology companies. Yes, there was that one meeting, but uh, beyond that, we don't have a clear sense. I think that's true, although this is a pretty um, young administration. You may not feel that way, but well, it could be Peter, you could say it's, it's been Peter Thiel. Uh, yes, good point. I, I neglected to mention Peter Thiel, obviously, has been a, a close advisor, an advisor to Trump. Co-founder um, of PayPal. But wasn't uh, he like an Australian citizen? Wasn't New Zealand. That? He is, New Zealand citizen. Yes, and he is also an, an immigrant, it should be said, that Thiel's originally uh, emigrated from Germany. Well, Shira, thank you so much for joining us. Shira Oviday, who covers the technology sector for us. Let's move forward, though, with uh, Justin uh, Sink. Justin is our Bloomberg government reporter, and he joins us now. Uh, Justin, let's uh, get the the sort of agenda. What is scheduled for today uh, as far as the cabinet uh, nominees? Yeah, uh, so we are expecting, but but aren't positive that we're going to see Rex Tillerson, the the Secretary of State, um, have his sort of final vote in in the Senate. It's expected that he's going to fly through and likely fly through today, uh, especially after winning the support of some key Republicans, including Marco Rubio. But Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, um, the the top Democrat in the Senate, uh, said Monday that he's hoping to ask for a delay on the confirmation vote, citing the sort of chaos uh, stemming from from the Muslim ban um, or the extreme vetting uh, ban, depending on who you're talking to, uh, that that unrolled over the weekend and obviously caused some chaos at airports and and across the country. You know, one thing that uh, was a little bit played down as a result of getting overshadowed by the uh, executive order on immigration that President Trump signed was the uh, decision to elevate Steve Bannon to National Security Council and to remove some other uh, national security officials from that post. Do you have uh, any color on what was behind that or what the implications are? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it is interesting to just show uh, a bit of the consolidation of power that Steve Bannon, who's you know the former chairman of Breitbart, um, now a, a top aide both in the campaign and the, and the White House to Donald Trump, uh, some of his, his power. It, it does make sense in the context that when Bannon was introduced, he was um, sort of 
referred to as a, as a co-chief uh, of staff with, with Reince Priebus, that they'd have similar roles. The chief of staff typically serves on the NSC, on the NSC but it is um, somewhat unprecedented to have a purely political figure on the staff. George W. Bush explicitly excluded people uh, under Obama. David Axelrod will sit in on a couple of those meetings, but, but wasn't there regularly. And so um, this is a change. The other sort of aspect to this is that um, one of the people who had their roles uh, a little reduced was the director of national intelligence, Mike Flynn, who's um, the national security advisor, has said that he wants DNI, which is the body that kind of coordinates all the different intelligence agencies together to have a reduced role. And and that's interesting because Mike Flynn was actually fired by President Obama's director of national intelligence a couple of years ago. And so he has, I think, some residual animosity towards that body and, and is looking to reform um, uh, the way that intelligence works in the Trump administration so that people like him uh, can succeed in a way that they they didn't or he didn't uh, in the Obama administration. One other thing that we've heard out of uh, President Trump's camp uh, this morning was that he intends to revamp Dodd-Frank in a very big way. Uh, I want to bring in Nathan Dean uh, of Bloomberg Intelligence to give us more of a sense of what this potential rollback might look like, especially in light of uh, Treasury Secretary nominee uh, Steve Mnuchin's comments uh, last week while he was being uh, when he while he was testifying in front of Senate, saying that he did not intend to completely uh, eradicate the Volcker rule. So I think what this means is that they're going to be studying the existing regulations. Uh, they're going to spend a couple of months, three to six months, looking at the regs uh, and trying to look at ways that they can increase liquidity. Uh, they can actually maybe make it cheaper to lend money. Uh, but I think you're going to see a targeted look at regulations. SEC chair. Uh, nominee Jay Clayton, for example, he's going to have uh, carte blanche uh, to look at this. But if you look at regulations that are governed by the Fed or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, those are still led by uh, Obama-era appointees. And so uh, Janet, Ye- Janet Yellen at the Fed, for example, you know, she's going to remain in office till 2018. Uh, she may not abide by what, uh, by what President Trump wants to do in terms of regulation or rolling back Dodd-Frank. Hey, Nathan, could you just elaborate on, on who Clayton is and what his background indicates about what he's likely to be like as uh, as the head? Yep. So Jay Clayton uh, from Sullivan and Cromwell uh, has done a lot of work with Wall Street, uh, not so much on financial regulation, more uh, IPO, M&A activity. Uh, our take on that is that he speaks to bank's language, but he's not a Dodd-Frank, uh, um, uh, not a lot of experience in terms of Dodd-Frank. So uh, what we expect from uh, the nominee when he comes in, and we expect him to be confirmed, uh, is that uh, they're going to spend some time, three to six months, not putting any new regulations out uh, that we expect the ACC to follow uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, executive order on that, so we don't expect any new regs. Uh, but we expect to see him talking to the industry, talking to a lot of bankers about what they see as ways that they can roll back regs, uh, and then eventually pushing the agency to uh, move forward on that. Yeah. Nathan Dean, thank you so much. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence government analyst there on Dodd-Frank. And Justin Sink, before I say goodbye, just in a couple of seconds, what's the mood like right now in Washington? I think uh, it's a little chaotic. Everybody's trying to to figure out uh, what the priorities of the Trump administration are and how they're implementing some of these executive actions, because obviously uh, it's not being communicated extremely well right now. Thank you so much. Justin Sink, uh, Bloomberg government reporter in Washington, D.C.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.